Have you ever had the opportunity to go down a one-way street the wrong way? Well, I did this many, many years ago. It was interesting. I was trying to get away from somebody else. Long story, but it was all out of fun. And I go down this one-way street, and who do you think I see? I am face-to-face, car-to-car, to a police officer. And the police officer just looks at me and gives this incredulous look like, what are you doing? And I just waved and went drove right around him. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're not supposed to go down one-way streets the wrong way. But I think in life, I think we do that quite a bit. So today is an interesting topic. It's about truth. And interesting, as I was researching this, I came upon quite a few little tidbits. I'm not going to share them all today, but I will share some of them. But I have found that truth or the pursuit question of truth has been around for quite some time. Truth is one of the central subjects in philosophy. It is also one of the largest. Truth has been a topic of discussion in its own right for thousands of years. Moreover, a huge variety of issues in philosophy relate to truth, either by relying on thesis about truth or implying thesis about truth. There you go. The truth is deep. Uh, I think sometimes we make it simplistic, but most of the time it's very, very deep when you start to really think about it. And it is the core of philosophy to develop this aspect of understanding what is truth. Well, in digging around, I came across the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. They have an interesting quote, and they, they give a biblical reference, which was quite surprising in this actual quote. This philosophical question of truth has been with us for a long time. In the first century A.D., Pontius Pilate, found in John 18.38, asked, What is truth? But no answer was forthcoming. The problem has been studied more since the turn of the 20th century than any other previous time. In the last 100 or so years, considerable progress has been made in solving the problem. If you're a little bit older like me, you may remember this great movie starring Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, and Demi Moore, A Few Good Men. And there's this one particular line in there, you know, Tom Cruise's character, he is pushing and pushing and pushing Jack Nicholson's character. He's a tough Marine from Cuba and Guantanamo Bay. And he's pushing for the truth. And... Tom Cruise's character says, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson yells back, you can't handle the truth. Well, sometimes I wonder if we can't handle the truth. I mean, really when it comes down to it, what is truth? And could we handle it if we saw it and knew what it was firsthand? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Can we handle the truth? What is it? What is the truth? Well, I find something interesting that truth can be one of two things. It can be subjective or it can be objective. So I'll give you an example. Uh, quite a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go speak for a week to high school students in my role as a pastor. I, I asked them a question. I actually did this little exercise with them. It was quite creative. And before I did that, I got candy, went down to Walmart, got candy, put it in a jar. I actually counted each piece of the candy and put it in the jar. And then on the bottom of the jar on the sticker, I wrote how many pieces of candy were in there. So I held this jar of candy up to the kids. And I asked them, how guess how many pieces of candy are in this jar? And I got numerous guesses, and, and I said, okay, fine. So then I held up an iTunes gift card, and I asked them for, I said, just shout out your favorite artist or your favorite song. And, you know, 200 plus kids all yelling out their favorite music. Then I posed a question. I held the jar up, and I held the, the gift card up, the iTunes gift card. And I held them up, and I said to them, what is truth most like? This jar of candy or your favorite type of music? 
And most of the kids said, it's like music. I said, why is that? And they said, well, because it's what I like. It's what, it's what I feel like at the moment. I said, there you go. No matter how you feel about the jar of candy, you might like the candy, you might not like the candy, you might be really hungry for the candy, you can't change the number of candies that were in that jar. There was 137 of them. But your music taste change can change even throughout the day based on how you feel. One is objective, the other one is subjective. There's a difference, and then we're going to look at that today because it's important to recognize that truth is truth no matter what we see about it. You see, we're in a society right now that says, well, whatever you want to think about it, that's what it is. Whatever you feel about it, well, then that's the truth that you see. And I am troubled by the fact that many people are willing to forego actual facts when it, they're presented and say, well, I don't care. I don't believe it, and I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to it. It's not truth to me. Yet here we are with this idea of subjective and objective truth. So we're going to explore this idea together. And I want to take a look as we start digging into truth. Might have a couple little quotes here that seem a little bit more serious. But I, but I want us to formulate this idea of truth. And, and why do we search for truth? Well, author Josh McDowell, I, I think he writes it very well. When all is said and done, there is no pursuit more worthy than following the truth wherever it may lead. Now, speaking of truth, I present to you from a Christian standpoint. But yet, you may be watching this, if you've gotten this far into the series, and you say, well, you know, Dean, it's really great that you're talking to me about God as he's represented and understood through the Christian faith. But explain to me why there's so many other religions in the world. And what makes Christianity as a religion different or better or more certain than all the other religions? Well, that's a great question. So I, I thought I'd give you an interesting little tidbit here. I want, I'm going to show you this map on the screen. This is representative of figures from 2010. But I look at the map. I'm going to leave it up here while I talk. If you look on the left side of the map, you will see the, these are representative of different areas of the world. And you will note that on the left side is represented the United States, then down to South America, then you move over to the middle and you have Europe and then Africa. And as you move further to the right, you in green, you see significant green, you have Asia, Middle East. You'll note in blue that there is quite a bit of Christian influence throughout the Americas. And as you move over into the middle of the map, you will see a lot of Muslim influence. And then, of course, as you move to the right, you see red, and you'll see what that notates down below. You see a lot of influence in Hindu and Buddhist. But I want you to look. Go to the top left-hand corner of this map. See the gray in the United States? This represents agnostic atheist. Now, this number has grown since 2010. These are people who would call the nuns. And you move to the middle, and you'll also see Europe, and you'll see quite significant. Here's the, here's the reality as this map has changed and it's moved uh, into 2020. Of course, that was the most complete figures that were done in 2010. The nuns, meaning no religious affiliation, has actually jumped in the United States to almost 25%. That's significant. That means out of the 325 million people that we have in the United States, we're getting close to almost 80 million people who say, I don't have a God, I don't have a religion, I just have my belief, which is there is no God and I don't affiliate with anything. Well, this gives you that map, that little map that was pretty cool. It gave you an idea of how it lays out in different parts of the, of the world. But I want to focus in on the five top religions in the world. Just compare them for a little bit 
And then I've also thrown in Judaism as well, since it is one of the prominent ones that stems off of Abraham and the Jewish nation. So let's look at them together. I, I think it's quite fascinating, and I want to explore it. So looking at it, we see across the top, and this gives you the figures of how many people in the world are represented in each one of these religions. We've got 2.5 billion in Christianity. Islam is next with 1.8. Then unaffiliated, the agnostic and atheists and that we were talking about, they're at 1.2 billion people, followed by Hindu, Buddhist, and then, as I mentioned, I put in Judaism. Now down below, as you keep looking down this, you see their, their, the next line is their book or their scriptures. Then the next line shows who their, what they would say is the major influence or the founder. Then we go next to the type. Are they, are, do they believe in a single God or plural gods? And you will note that Christianity and Islam are monotheistic. I did this one, idealistic, because it's whatever I think I want is unaffiliated. Uh, Hindu says that, they're, that they are monotheistic, although they take their one God and divide them into multiple gods that they worship, and they're separate gods that represent the one God. And then you have followed up by Buddhist and Judaism. The next line is, do they believe in a god? Or who do they call their god? Then you have God and Trinity for Christianity. You have Allah. You have Brahman. And then as you follow to the farthest column, you have Yahweh. And note, the Yahweh, the Jewish writings, and even as they write it and speak it, they do not pronounce God's name in full. They do not include the vowels. And then the last line shows when it was founded. First century, sixth century for Islam. 1500 BCE for Hindu, 600 BC, that's before Common Era, and then 2000 BCE for Judaism. And then the last one is about the afterlife, because that is a very important question for many. And Christianity says eternal life granted to all who believe. Islam, eternal life granted upon judgment. Uh, unaffiliated, uh, well, it's the end, there's nothing else. Then you have reincarnation for Hindu and Buddhist. And then lastly, it's very ambiguous with uh, the Judaism. Uh, they talk about the afterlife, but it is, again, it's very ambiguous. Well, then, we can't forget there's lots of other religions, too. You have Taoism, Sikhism, Confucianism, uh, Humanism, Baha'i, Shinoism, Jainism, and there, there's many other ones, but they're a lot, much smaller than the ones that we just talked about. So, in these religions, you, they each will tell you, we have the truth. Well, what is the truth? I mean, I think Pilate brought it up well. But there's this idea that has been going on here now for quite a while, this tolerance. Uh, we, need to, we need to coexist. And there's this bumper sticker that I saw a number of years ago. Fascinatingly enough, it came from the Washington National Cathedral. It says coexist. And you'll see in that, in that bumper sticker the emblems of different of the religions. And this idea is, well, we're all here. We, are, we all need to tolerate. We're all headed the same direction. We're all, on this, we're all on different paths to the same final destination, so we should just tolerate each other while we're here. There's also this picture that says, well, if you say that your religion is better than mine, that makes you a spiritual racist. No, I'll give you an idea. Let's read this together. I am absolutely aghast, says Rabbi Botich, against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you. So here posed the question, if, if this is the way that many feel, and we have multiple religions that would claim that I'm the truth, I'm the way, and I, I have the path. How do we reconcile this statement as we've been studying through the last sessions and we're learning more about God, the Word, the origins? How do we reconcile this particular statement from Jesus? 
Now, just to give you context, this was the final discourse that he had with the disciples. He was in the upper room. This occurred less than 24 hours prior to his crucifixion. And this is what he was speaking to them amongst many other things. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you may know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here is Jesus, God in human flesh. He makes a very definitive statement to start with. He says, I am. Well, the Jewish audience, that's who he was ministering to at the time, he's speaking to the disciples, and you can note this at different aspects in the scriptures through the Gospels, he said, I am, and they recognized that means God. When Moses was having the encounter with the burning bush, it was God speaking to Moses through that, and Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? He said, I am sent you. I am is God. So Jesus had said, I am, several times to the religious leaders. And here he was saying to the disciples, I am, definitively, God, the way, the truth, and the life. There's nothing else. Well, let's look at it real close. Look at the three definitive statements. The way, the truth, and the life. And then you notice that he follows up, look right after where it says the life and white. No one comes to the Father except through me. Really. I mean, I don't, you know, some people would say, I, I, I push back against that. I don't like a religion where the founder or the, or the primary leader of the religion says, it's my way or no way. And they reject it. But yet Jesus is saying here, as we look at the text one more time, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In exploring this a little bit deeper, I want to take you to a quote from Ravi Zacharias. Now, Ravi Zacharias, we're going to see a little bit more about his history coming up, but he's a noted apologist and theologian, and he, he, had, he has some experience dealing with multiple different religions. But he takes a look at this quote from Jesus, and he answers a particular question, and we're going to look at his quote, and then we're going to layer a little bit of what Christ had to say over what Ravi Zacharias writes. Even if not overtly admitted, the search for truth is nevertheless hauntingly present, propelled by the need for incontrovertible answers to four unescapable questions, those dealing with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. No thinking person can avoid this search, and it can only end when one is convinced that the answers espoused truth. I am convinced that Jesus actually answered those four particular questions in his statement to the disciples, which we have written in the Gospel of John, that we still have access today, that we read. Not convinced? I'm going to take, let's look at Ravi Zacharias' quote one more time, and then I'm going to layer the statements that Christ made in comparison to the quote from Ravi Zacharias. Even if not overly admitted, who the search for truth is nevertheless hauntingly present, propelled by the need for incontrovertible answers to four unescapable questions, those dealing with origin, I am, God said, I am, Jesus said, I am, he's the creator, meaning, Jesus said, I'm the way. You can look a lot of different directions, a lot of different paths, but I'm the only way. Morality, Jesus represents truth, as God is truth, and the right way of living and doing things. And destiny, the life, eternal life. No thinking person can avoid this search, and it can only end when one is convinced that the answers espoused truth. But you know, even, even with 
Christ's definitive statement, there are still so many in society today that say, I reject it. I refuse to believe that what he says is actually true. And because somebody makes a definitive truth, they say, nope, not going to believe it. Because you declare that your truth is the only truth, I reject it. We, we, that's the society we live in today for many people. It's a postmodern society. It's quite difficult to even minister in. It's quite difficult to explore in. That's because there's a lot more doubt, skepticism, the, the rise of atheism and agnostics, deists. Humanism has really risen that says, I have all the answers. I can find them myself. I don't need an outside force. I don't need a God to tell me what to believe, how to believe. And, and so how do we reconcile this? How do we compare to other religions, the statement, what Jesus had to say? Well, again, I want to take you to Ravi Zacharias, but it's a different approach. Lee Strobel writes in his book, The Case for Faith, he has an interview. And in this particular chapter, Strobel goes and he interviews Ravi Zacharias. Well, it's a, there's a little bit to this quote, so just bear with me as we go over it. But I want to just give you the little background that Lee Strobel writes about Ravi Zacharias to help you give, get, excuse me, a context of who Ravi Zacharias is and why he has the ability to answer some of the questions in the way he does. After spending his early years as a Christian in name only, Zacharias found a tentative kind of faith at the age 17 after hearing an American evangelist speak at a rally. Later, he ended up in the hospital after attempting to kill himself over the meaningless of life, an experience through which he became a radically devoted follower of Jesus and a missionary from India to places around the world. At the age 17, he, he sees something about God. Then he tries to take his life because even though he's found this token of what God might be, he says life is meaningless. Well, Strobel builds onto that. I knew his experience in that multicultural multi-religious environment where he grew up among Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs would enrich his perspective on the troubling question of Christ's exclusivity. What, what are we speaking about? Again, Christ's statement that says, I am God, the way, the truth, the life. That's exclusivity. So he's asking Rabbi Zacharias, well, how do you reconcile what, what people would perceive as Christian exclusivity as compared to other religions? Well, Zacharias is very insightful on this. It's important to understand that Christianity is not the only religion that claims exclusivity. Muslims radically claim exclusivity, not just theologically, but also linguistically. Muslims believe that the sole, sufficient, and consummate miracle of Islam is the Quran. They say, however, it's only recognizable in Arabic and that any translation desacralizes it. As for Buddhism, it was born when Gautama Buddha rejected two fundamental assertions of Hinduism the ultimate authority of the Vedas, which are their scriptures, and the caste system. Hinduism itself is absolutely uncompromising on two or three issues, the law of karma, the authority of the Vedas, and reincarnation. As for Sikhism, it came as a challenge to both Hinduism and Buddhism. Here we have an example of this exclusivity as its comparison from other religions to Christianity. So some would say, well, well Christianity is too exclusive, and here he's saying, well, the other ones are too. And you notice how the, the, the Buddhism came from Hinduism and as, as well as Sikhism. Well, I don't like your truth, so I'm going to go form my own truth. Well, I think that's what we've done pretty much in our society today. With the, when you consider we have 1.2 billion agnostic atheists who say, nope, I have my own truth. It's what I believe to be truth, and I reject everything else that has to do with you. In fact, well, let's just go a little bit further because he interviews him, and it's quite interesting what he what he discovers in relationship to this exclusivity that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
You can approach this issue, this, this Christian exclusivity, by looking at the four fundamental questions every religion seeks to answer. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. You see, that's the four major questions about life. I mean, let's think about this for a second. Have you ever said, where did I come from? Because where I came from really depends on my value as a person. And then you, then you say, well, why, what's my purpose? Uh, where am I headed? What's right and wrong in the world? And what happens when I die? So what he's saying is all these religions try to answer that particular question. But in, in light of Christianity, what does that look like? I believe that only the answers of Jesus Christ correspond to reality. There is coherence among his answers unlike that of any other religion. No, no man spoke like Jesus. No one ever answered the questions the way he answered them, not only propositionally, but also in person. Existentially, we can test it out. Empirically, we can test it out. The Bible is not just a book of mysticism or spirituality. It's a book that also gives geographical truths and historical truths. Jesus not only spoke, he lived it. He proved it because of who he was. Then he goes on, and it's really the clincher in this final aspect of this statement. I want you to dwell on it, because maybe you fall into this category, and I'm appealing to you as I read this final sentence. If you're an honest skeptic, it's not just calling you to a feeling, it's calling you to a real person. And then as he wraps up that portion of that particular interview with Lee Strobel, Zacharias quotes this beautiful text from 2 Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I like that statement that he makes to the honest skeptic. Let me look at it again real quick. To the honest skeptic, it's not just calling you, the search for answers, the search for truth, to a feeling, as many other religions, you know, I feel good about myself because I accomplished something, etc. I found my center and my path and my meditation. It's calling you to a real person. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as, if we're honest with ourselves, do we want that definitive certainty? Do we want that statement of authority in our life? And I, and I believe that that might be one of the reasons why so many people reject a, a strong truth like that, a strong statement, because they say, well, I don't like somebody telling me I have it because I want to have it. I want to explore it. I want to find it for myself. But to the honest-seeking heart, I believe that Jesus reveals who he is. And And... Why does, of all these other teachers, you know, uh, Muhammad being one, you know, because Islam is the second largest religion, so many looked to, from that religion looked to Muhammad. What makes a difference between him and, and, and Jesus? What makes a difference between Brahman and Hindu and Jesus? R.C. Sproul, he really sums it up. Moses could meditate on the law. Muhammad could brandish a sword. Buddha could offer wise sayings, but none of these men was qualified to offer an atonement for the sins of the world. Christ alone is worthy of unlimited devotion and service. We, we shared in the last session about this idea of fulfilling the covenant that Jesus did on the cross. You see, that's what gave him the authority to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, because not only am I going to tell you that, I'm going to prove it. All the other founders of all the other religions, they offered great deeds and they could do different things. But only Jesus was able to bring together and bridge and make an atonement for those who were lost to be found again. For those who were pushed aside by sin to, to be able to come to him and be reconciled to God. I mentioned to you 
that the difference between Christianity and Muslim, as I've studied it and read it, and this, this is being simplistic about it, much deeper than that, but Christianity says eternal life comes because you believe, because Jesus said eternal life for all who believe. And as I studied the Muslim religion and their search for the afterlife, they go to a judgment, and in their deeds from this life that they've lived here, I don't really want to be judged on my deeds. I would never make it. They judge them and say, well, you're fit or you're not. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he died and was resurrected to prove that he was all of what he said he was. So it gives a definitive aspect to the statement, once again, as we look at it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And maybe we can accept when he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. Well, here's the beautiful thing about what Jesus said. He not only claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, he offered other things to go along with that, and it, and it kind of merges it together. So let's stop in a couple of different places in the Gospels. Let's go to John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. There's that word again. And the truth will set you free. Verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Not only did he say, I'm the way, the truth, but of all the other truths in the world, I am the truth. He says, I is the truth, I will set you free. Knowing the truth. You see, it's not just knowing about truth, it's knowing the truth, because truth is, is a person, it's God. He said, you don't just know, but you will experience, and you will know about, and you have a deep relationship with the truth. Well then, he says, not only will I give you the truth, but I'll also light the path and the way that you're going. Go back to John. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the other thing about this truth that Jesus, as he said who he was, he speaks to the deepest needs of humanity. What are our deepest needs? Again, the four questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's right? And where am I headed? Jesus speaks to that deep longing. So in this particular story, the context is Jesus is, has a sermon and it's, people are hungry and he realizes, well, I can't send them away. So through a beautiful miracle, he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. They, the people are amazed that this man can actually take a, a, a basket with loaves and fishes and feed them. And they start following him around and they want to they crown him to be king. So they see Jesus the next day, and he recognizes that they're hungering for something. They are focused on physical food, but Jesus wants to point to something that's even greater. I mean, we all need to eat. Bread is the core existence of life. And he's recognizing this, and he's, he's talking to the people, and this is what he says to them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They follow Jesus because they had a physical need. Jesus is saying to them and to you and to me, follow me because you can get bread anywhere. But the bread that will satisfy your heart and your deepest longings and what you want to know and what, you, what, what is at the core of your being, I alone can do that. I'm the bread of life. You, you notice though at the end of the text that he said something else. He said, I'm the bread of life, but he said to all those who thirst. We go on a little bit further in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water is core to who we are. I mean, our bodies are 75% water. We cannot go very far without water. I mean, you ever walked in a hot place? So last year I was able to go to Petra in Jordan, one of the seven wonders of the world. And 
I took my water in, but halfway through the trip, my water was gone, and it was almost 100 degrees. I was coming up a hill with a friend of mine, and I was dying. I mean, I thought, man, if I, I'd pay $100 for a bottle of water right now. Well, wouldn't you know, there was a little booth set up, and a man was selling water. He only charged us $3. I guzzled that water. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. I am the water. You thirst for something deeper, something more. And that's why he can definitively say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go to anywhere else, get anywhere else except through me, because he recognizes and he offers to you, I can give you what you're searching for. If you're really honest about it, if you bring a level of humility to it, I can give you all that you ask for and all that you need and desire. Now, not only does he offer this truth, not only does he offer to be the bread of life and to quench your thirst and all the heart's desires you have, he also says, I will partner with you in this life, and I can give you something that the world cannot. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Well, we don't like to think about being captured and pushed into something, but Jesus is saying, wait, I can help you with something. When you want to train an ox, you take an experienced one, you put him in the yoke, and then you take the inexperienced one, you put him in the yoke, and they, the inexperienced one learns from the experienced one. Jesus is saying, not only am I the way, the truth, and the life, but I can teach you the way, I can teach you the truth, and I can show you what life looks like, because I'm willing to partner with you. I didn't just come to this earth just for 33 years. I want to be present with you, and he is through the Holy Spirit, and partner with you in life on your search for meaning, on your quest and your hunger and your thirst for more. And through all the things in this crazy world that you're going to face, he promises to, his burden is easy. You see, we, I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and then demand everything from it, say you must follow all sorts of different things. But he said, my, I, it's easy. It really is. We're going to talk more about that at another session. Because many people say, well, it's not that easy. But yet, it is. And he promises to walk with. You see, his promises are, 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 are amazing. We go on to John 18. Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Let's stop right there. Jesus, right there to Pilate, is saying, I came into this world for a reason. What was that reason? To save us. To reconcile us, to live out the covenant. I came for this purpose. He knew exactly what he was about. And that's why we can, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, we can believe him. Again, as R.C. Sproul said, all the other ones have great philosophies and they can do wonderful things, but only Jesus gave his life because that was his purpose. Going on. To bear witness to the truth. That was my purpose. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him in response, what is truth? We close this up. I want to share a story with you. There's three parables in Luke 15. Now, I like all of them. First one is the lost sheep. He gets lost and the man has 100 sheep and he goes to find this one. He has 99 in the fold. He goes and finds the one and he throws a party. The next one is about a woman who has 10 coins. This is her dowry. She loses one of the coins and she goes looking all over the house for it. She finally finds it. She throws a party. Well, one thing I learned about those two stories is the kingdom of God is a party. Seriously. God rejoices over the lost when they find and are connected to the to the bread of life and the ultimate thirst quencher. Then he tells another story. And, and the, wrapping this up, this is my one of my favorite stories out of the Bible. It is my favorite parable that Jesus spoke. So this man had two sons. 
older and younger, and the younger one came to him, and he said, Dad, I, I want half the inheritance that you're going to give when you die. I want it right now. And the father didn't have to say yes, but he did. He gave it to him, and the son wandered off, it said, to a far-off country, and he partied and had a great time. I mean, had the best of everything, loose friends, involved in all the different things. He was searching for meaning in his life. Well, to the listeners of that day, they would have said, well, that's three strikes against the son, because number one, he wished his father to be dead. Number two, he went to a far-off, so he must have been to the Gentile country. And number three, he wasted it on, on garbage and junk. And then he was found in the pigsty, strike three. Because it says when he ran out of money, he ran out of friends. And there he was, couldn't eat, couldn't do anything, and he got a job feeding pigs, and he was so hungry he was willing to eat what they ate. So as Jesus is telling the story, he says, the, the young boy, he's sitting in the pen, and he's thinking, hmm, you know, my, the servants in my father's house, they've got it much better than this. So he gets his speech together, and, he's, and, he, and he practices it, and he decides to finally get up and go home. And what he's thinking is, I'll just be a servant. I'll go live in the servants' quarters. As he's getting to the house, says, while he was afar off, the father saw him and ran to him. Here's this stately figure running to him, and he says, get the robe and put it on him. Get the ring and put it on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. What was happening in that story, and this was three, three strikes against the father, it was, he was running, for one, you're dignified in that culture, you're not supposed to run. Number two, he was giving him the ring that was the family ring that they would stamp the wax seals to affirm contracts and things of that nature. And then he put a robe and sandals back on him to give him full rights to the family. And he said, the son of mine that was lost is found. And he threw a party. Now, the elder brother wasn't too excited about it. But the younger brother, here he, if he'd have known all along that the father was waiting for him to come home and do that, he would have left the pig pen a long time ago. In fact, he may never have even left. And really, this encapsulates who God is and who we are. It's quite simple. God says, I'm watching, I'm waiting, I love you. I sent my son, the sonship through the covenant, to retrieve, redeem, and reconcile the world. And you keep walking away, you keep wandering around in other countries looking for truth, and you're searching for all these other things. And here I am. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, yet you keep looking at everything else around you. And here I am. Well, it's been said, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And if you're an honest skeptic, if you're an honest doubter, and you really are searching and seeking, then what's stopping you? What, 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 Pascal, he made a, he said, take the wager. I mean, what have you got to lose? He said that, that God is real. What have you got to lose to find out? You've been looking at everything else. Maybe you've explored all the other religions. Maybe you're looking at, at particular ones and you like the different ones. And, and, and you've shied away beforehand to say, well, I, I don't really know that I like the one where it's definitive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But yet, he backs it with love. He shares it in love because he knows I have provided everything for you. And if you believe, then you will find me. But there's a promise that I want to share with you as we wrap it up, found in Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me. If you're not a skeptic and you really are searching, when you seek me with all your heart. What does that mean? It means I'm all in. This wager, I mean I'm all in. We can't be just partially, you know, divided. We were like that young man in a different country looking for all the other things that we think matter. But they don't. And, and, and God is saying through Jeremiah, if you, if you seek me with all your heart, 
you'll find me. And then God adds another promise right at the end of it. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I don't know what you're searching for today. I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful that you've gone through this whole series, but maybe you just stumbled upon this as you did a YouTube search or on Facebook. What are you searching? What are you looking for? Do you have one of those four questions that has been surfacing over and over in your heart? Where did I come from? What's my purpose? What's right and wrong? Where am I going? I mean, I was like, I'm 50 years old now, and I think a lot more about what's going to happen when I die than I did 20, 30 years ago. And I've also been able to, in God, find the answers to the questions that I'm seeking. And whatever the deep longing is in your heart, I don't know what it is, but you do. And best of all, God knows. I mean, the Holy Spirit is with you right now while you're watching this and knows what is in your heart, what is what, what, what is welling up inside of you that Jesus can answer? He said, I'm the bread of life. You're hungry, I can feed you. You're thirsty, I can give you the water of eternal life that will quench your thirst, that will, that will satisfy your hunger for all the answers you have. One of my favorite authors is A.W. Tozer, and as we close, I want to share this beautiful quote with you. God is here. The whole universe is alive with his life, and he is no stranger or foreign God, but the familiar father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose love has for these thousands of years enfolded the sinful race of men, and always he is trying to get our attention to reveal himself to us, to communicate with us. We have within us the ability to know him if we will but respond to his overtures. There's a lot of different paths that say, I'm the way. There's a lot of different belief systems that will tell you if you do this or you do that, you can achieve what you're looking for. But only one in Christ, God in the flesh, God of eternity says, I am the way, not just a way. I am the way. I am the truth, not a truth, but the definitive truth that provides you freedom. And I am the life, not just any life, but eternal life and abundant life here. And whatever your search is taking you, I hope that when it's all said and done, that you'll find that your best search, your best opportunities, your best route of exploration the one that will satisfy and bring you the depths of your hearts to its full contentment and satisfaction is found in God alone.